Yeah, so return stacking is the name that we decided to go with here rather than leverage. And I should be fully clear, uh, the phrase return stacking was Rodrigo's brainchild, and I, and I absolutely love it. A lot of people are afraid of the word leverage, and, and you know perhaps for good reason. You can get into a lot of trouble with leverage. I think what return stacking really clarifies is that what we're doing is we're just adding return streams together, right? So when you say, how should this portfolio behave? And I tell you it's a 60-40 that's levered up 1.5 times. Well, I think it's easier to think about it as you getting 90% equity plus 60% bonds. And we're stacking that bond return on top of the equity return, right? And so I think um, from that perspective, return stacking is a much more approachable way to think about this. Whereas I think leverage, we can get all bent out of shape with, with how we approach leverage. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I are joined by two great guests, Corey Hofstein of Newfound Research and Rodrigo Gordio of Resolve Asset Management. We talked to Corey and Rodrigo about their new joint research paper, Return Stacking Strategies for Overcoming a Low-Return Environment. Given the level of equity valuations and also ultra-low interest rates, traditional investment allocations like the 60-40 may produce below-average returns going forward. We discussed their strategy of return stacking, which incorporates discipline leverage and then correlated asset classes on top of the 60-40 as a way to get improved returns in the future without overreaching on the risk side. Please enjoy this discussion with newfounds Corey Hofstein and Rosales Rodrigo Gordillo. All right, Rod and Corey, thank you guys for jumping on with us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. We're looking forward to talking to you about the new research paper you wrote on return stacking. But what's interesting is last time, or one of the last times I saw Corey, he was actually stacking 75 pounds on his back. <laughs> I got to say, I haven't been training this year for March for the Fallen, so I, it's not going to go nearly as well. 75? Is that what you were carrying? Yeah, my, my back. It was, it was a poor decision. All right, it was a poor decision. What is it, 45 normally, like the rucksack when we do the uh, March for the Fallen? Normally, like, what's the, uh, is it 35 that they were, that's the entry point? Yeah. 35 is a heavy division. Yeah. Can you do nothing like the rest of us? Do you always have to show us off? <laughs> so, you, well, before we get into the paper, I want to ask you guys, I think you guys have a unique sort of collaboration between your two firms. With Corey, you're at Newfound, and Rod with Resolve Asset Management. So... You know, I think there's a tendency a lot of times in our industry and business to just do things internally. You know, we're doing our own internal research. Or we're really not collaborating with others in our industry, thinking there's like competitive, you know, issues going on. So in your case, and I know you guys are doing some other things as well, but sort of what led you to what has really become a great collaboration? And, you know, you're producing really good, valuable research. So what's sort of the genesis of this? You know, I think that you know, way, way back, I remember with uh, Wes Gray, the first time we started publishing content in 2011, 2012, uh, he came on the scene with a common um, client that was reading our paper, was reading Wes's paper. We started talking. They were saying, well, I, you know, which quant should I choose? And as we got to know Wes's approach and our approach, it became abundantly clear that even though we're quants, generally speaking, there's very different ways of attacking quant, as you guys know, rules-based investing in, in any which way. We focus on asset allocation. We were global. They were stock selection, value, momentum. And in the same way, over the years, as we got to know Corey and his work, you know, both publishing, both quantitatively invested, we ended up meeting over and over again with the same advisors and clients that were reading Corey's research. And, and it just became clear that there was it was we were better off working together and helping these people you know think about the problem from different perspectives than trying to compete for a piece of the pie and so over the years that has continued to grow and for the stacking returns piece there was a an R, a large RIA that was trying to figure out how to create a certain amount of portfolio but increasing the volatility and Corey and I started talking about how we can help them and you know, providing embedded leverage and that kind of 
uh, led to this return stacking paper that um, that we collaborated on. I think we've done collaborations before on on just you know research on the background and helping with each other's papers, but this is the first time that we actually co-wrote something, and um, and it was a it was a great experience, much smoother than what I expected it to be. One of the things that I like about both of the types of research you guys put out, it's 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 not some like you know quick blog post, but it's also not a fifty page academic paper. You're sort of in the middle here with you know sophisticated concepts, but and you know meaty research, but being able to talk about it at a level that's I think understandable um, for many investors. Like our audience, the people listening to this are, are going to be mostly retail investors, so you know you guys can talk to this stuff in the type of way that is I think understandable for for you know, the vast majority of investors. Um, the one um, where I wanted to start here though, and you kind of started the paper here, is on the 60-40 portfolio and how strong of a portfolio or investment allocation that's been really over the last 40 years. So one of the, I guess, um, ideas in the paper is you know it may not be, for the reasons I'll let you talk about, the returns of the 60-40 may not be um, as good as they have been in the past. So can you just kind of flush that out a little bit to set the stage here? Yeah, for the last 40 years, if we rewind the clock and, and look where that 40 year period began, it really starts in the early 1980s where you have high real interest rates and very cheap valuations and equities. So there really wasn't ever a better starting period in hindsight to be allocating towards a fairly passive market beta portfolio like a 60-40. And then if you look at the last 10 years, what you find is that the 10-year realized sharp ratio, right? How much return you're getting per unit of risk is one of the highest levels it's ever been for a US 60-40 portfolio. And even very close to that for a global 60-40 portfolio. So this has been a phenomenal run for a fairly well-diversified strategic asset allocation portfolio. Where we sit today, though, with that strength of a run, what we're looking at is high valuations in equities and very low real interest rates in bonds. And so if you're taking those together and trying to forecast out what sorts of returns we can expect, what we would look at is basically say, with high valuations and equities, we would expect some mean reversion over time, and that's gonna be a drag on equity returns. And with bonds, the math is even simpler. Your starting yield to maturity is a fantastic predictor of the return you're going to realize. If you hold the bond all the way to maturity and there's no default, it will be the return you realize. But even for something like a constant maturity or constant duration bond index, say your seven to 10 year US Treasury index or something like that, your yield to maturity is a really good predictor of returns over the next two times duration years. So if the duration of a seven to 10 year US Treasury portfolio is seven, we double it, call it 14. The current yield to maturity is a fantastic predictor of annualized returns over the next 14 years. And that's less escapable than the equity side, right? That's just bond math. Really, no matter what happens with interest rates, that's the return you're gonna annualize. Equities, there's the growth component that might surprise and outrun the valuation reversion. But when we look at that 60-40 and say, there is this big 40% slug that is definitively going to realize much lower returns than it has in the past, simply because of the way bonds work, it means that we as investors have to think about, are we going to be able to meet our future return needs with this same portfolio structure? I've been one of these guys that's been talking about, you know, the low returns or the low expected returns of the 60-40 for a long time. And, you know, what I've been saying has not been materializing. And I'm just wondering, do you think there's anything that could have changed in the world? Is mean reversion slowed down? Is, is there anything that could be happening where maybe as we talk about these expected returns, maybe this portfolio is going to do better than we think it's going to? One of the things we see over the last, call it 20, 30 years, is that the portfolio that's been required to hit, say, a target 7.5% return 
um, has gotten riskier and riskier based upon these forecasts, right? So in, in 1995, you could have had a 100% bond portfolio and achieved a 7.5% nominal return. And not far off of that from a real return basis either. Uh, fast forward to 2015, 2020, on an expected return basis, that portfolio now needs to be more like 90% risk assets, much of which has to be put towards private, less liquid investments like real estate, private credit, private equity, um, and just 10% in fixed income. So a lot of us for the last five years, seven years, have been saying expect low returns in equities going forward, valuations are elevated. Is this time different? Have we hit a permanently higher valuation plateau? Possibly. Did earnings growth outrun uh, the valuation reversion? Possibly. Uh, is that a gamble we want to take going forward? Not necessarily. One potential argument here is that as investors have been forced out along the risk curve from that all bond safe portfolio to a very risky asset dominant portfolio over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, that's increased the bid in, in valuation for equities. And so what you're seeing in the equity performance is the realization of everyone being forced into those risky assets potentially, but that's not a trend that can sustain forever. Just to set the framework for what we're going to talk about, you know, because the first question you always get when you say, all right, the 60-40 portfolio is not going to work is, well, what else? And before we talk about some of the concepts you talked about in the paper, I first want to talk about like what else is out there? What are sort of the other asset classes or the other things that are available to investors besides stocks and bonds that you might want to consider incorporating into a portfolio? Yeah, I think this, obviously there's two ways of dealing with diversifying your portfolio, right? You can add traditional, more traditional asset classes uh, that, are, that are not actively managed like gold, like um, commodities and the like. Then, then you have your actively managed kind of higher fee portfolio managers, your long short CTAs, your long short equity, your systematic global macro. You know, there's a wide plethora if you just go to the kind of the alternative side of things on Morningstar, you'll see the, your options there. So that's what advisors and investors are faced with, right? They're faced with understanding that possibly maybe in the future returns to 60-40 will be lower. And so if that's the case, if I'm smart and I'm, and, and I'm thoughtful about my portfolio, I should diversify. And so using these tools like non-correlated gold, non-correlated commodities, CTAs, and so on, what's been happening is applying these tools have, has hurt uh, investors quite a bit. Diversification has not paid off. Right. And so I think it's it's been an issue where if you've been thoughtful, you've gotten burned. If you're an advisor that has been thoughtful and reduced your 60 40 position to add these diversifying alternatives, you're having you're having things that are zigging when they're zagging. You're getting that diversification. But right now, what most people care about that is zigging up is 64 the, the home country bias that everybody experiences. And so it's much more painful to see everybody else that's 100% invested in domestic equities and bonds make that much more money when the other things have done either less well or negatively correlated, right? So on, on losing some money. So this is a problem. This is kind of what we see. This is where, where, where it all started, right? You see thoughtful advisors seeing, I think it's uh, chart one in the, in the paper, where you have your 60-40 killing it, your alt portfolio being, making half the return in year one, same thing in year two. By year three, you're firing your alt managers, you're booting out your gold and your commodities. Just when year four, when your alts make money, 60-40 loses money. And on average, you're, you're kind of making the same average return, but the experience was very, very different, right? That tracking error bias is so powerful. And so I think even in spite of the tools being there, uh, it's tough to adopt. Right. And it's tough to adopt because a lot of the alternatives have made single digit returns. You start the paper with this idea and, you know, this is this is sort of counterintuitive for investors. So I want to read a quote from the paper and, you know, maybe get your reaction. But you start with the idea of leveraging up the 60-40 portfolio. And, and the quote from the paper is an investor who borrows 50 percent against the value of their investments and uses the proceeds to allocate 150 percent to the 60-40 portfolio would expect to earn material higher returns than an investor in the 100% equity portfolio with a similar amount of risk. And I think that idea might be counterintuitive to investors. So can you sort of explain how that works? I think most investors think of leverage as something that's very dangerous, something that invites disaster. And that may be true when you are levered into a highly concentrated, particularly illiquid investment. 
But that's not necessarily true when what we're doing is using leverage to introduce diversification. So in this case, a 100% equity portfolio is very concentrated in equity risk. If we look at a 60-40 portfolio and lever it up 1.5 times, what you're left with is a 90% equity portfolio and 60% in bonds. And so that 90 versus 100, you're cutting a little bit of risk there, but the real benefit comes from the lack of correlation or potentially even negative correlation that we've seen in crises over the last 40 years, that bonds can be a diversifier to equities. And so it seems like we're taking more risk because for every dollar, we're getting a dollar fifty of exposure. But because that excess exposure is not only lower volatility, but it has exhibited low to negative correlation to equities, it can actually potentially reduce the risk of a 100% equity portfolio. I would add to that that you have a few more benefits from having two non-correlated return streams, right? The number one is, so you have 90% in equities. Uh, let's say the, you're expecting 10% returns in equities. All of a sudden, that 90% is giving you 9%. So what you need the other 60 to do is you need to make an, a 2% rate of return so that you match the return profile of your 100% equity portfolio. So that shouldn't be that difficult to do, even with what Corey has described and the ability to do some roll yield, you should be able to reach that. But more importantly, when, as Corey alluded to, when there's been negative growth shocks, you've seen a negative correlation between bonds and equities. And you're not just sitting there, you're rebalancing, you're taking away from the bonds and buying very cheap stock. And every time you get to do that, you're able to capture a rebalancing premium that, that helps in that regard. So you're not only getting for the, for the 150, you're getting the same, same or lower level of risk, likely a lower drawdown and a slightly better return. It just it hits every angle of what is um, required and desired by investors. In the paper, um, you guys and Corey, you kind of touched on this just a minute ago, but you use this the first example um, of um, this concept of return stacking, which maybe we can, you can, before you answer what the, the part that I'm really going to ask, maybe you could sort of talk about what, what return stacking is and sort of we can define that. But you use the example of a levered 60-40 and then you coupled that with bonds to illustrate sort of a simple concept of, of this idea of return stacking. You hit on it before, but if you could just maybe flush that out a little bit more, I think it would be helpful as we kind of move through the rest of the discussion here. Yeah, so return stacking is the name that we decided to go with here rather than leverage. And I should be fully clear, uh, the phrase return stacking was Rodrigo's brainchild, and I, and I absolutely love it. A lot of people are afraid of the word leverage and and you know perhaps for good reason you can get into a lot of trouble with leverage i think what return stacking really clarifies is that what we're doing is we're just adding return streams together right so when you say how should this portfolio behave and i tell you it's a 60 40 that's levered up 1.5 times well i think it's easier to think about it as you getting 90 percent equity plus 60 percent bonds and we're stacking that bond return on top of the equity return, right? And so I think um, from that perspective, return stacking is a much more approachable way to think about this. Whereas I think leverage, we can get all bent out of shape with, with how we approach leverage. This example we gave in the paper uh, was really inspired actually by work that's been done at PIMCO for the last 40 years. So there's a great paper written by Bill Gross in, in the mid-2000s where he talks about a lot of the edges that PIMCO has tried to harvest. And one of them he calls structural alpha. And the idea behind structural alpha is to use derivatives that provide capital efficiency, where you only have to allocate a little bit of capital to get some of this core beta exposure and then use the remaining capital in your portfolio to allocate to bonds where they think they have an edge. So that was a lot of jargon, so let me use an example. Let's say I wanted to own intermediate term US treasuries with a little bit of alpha. How could I go about achieving that? Well, I could buy a 10-year US treasury portfolio and try to actively trade the cash bonds and maybe try to trade the on the run versus the off the run and harvest some alpha there. But another way to do it 
would be to say, let me take 10% of my capital and use it as collateral to buy 10-year U.S. Treasury futures. And I'm going to buy a notional amount that's equal to 100% of my portfolio. Well, what I've done by using futures, which are very capital efficient, right? I only need to use 10% of my portfolio to get 100% exposure. I freed up the remaining 90% of my portfolio that I can do anything with. And so one of the things I can do, for example, is, and I don't have to take a lot of risk here, I can just buy short-term, very high-quality investment-grade bonds. You know, maybe one or two years in duration, maybe, you know, AAA rated. And hopefully that, that little bit of extra risk I'm taking there manifests in a, in a yield that is higher than the financing rate that's going to be embedded in my treasury futures. And that excess return is going to basically stack on top of my treasuries because when I look at the entire portfolio, it's basically 100% U.S. treasuries plus 90% very short-term high-quality corporate bonds. So the example in the paper does something very similar where we just use a 60-40, but I think keeping it simple here, that treasury example is, is a perfect case study of using return stacking in its very simplest form. And as you go through the paper, you start to introduce this concept of the leverage stock and bond exposure with other uncorrelated assets. So you continue to sort of stack and look for assets that are uncorrelated. So what when you when when you looked at that, what did you uh, uh, find in the data? So what really motivated us to write this paper is the realization that there wasn't just one or two funds like Corey and I manage uh, and, and I sub, we subdivise funds that have this capital efficiency across beta and, and alpha. But there were, we found more than a dozen active mutual funds and ETFs that have, for every dollar that you give them, some sort of beta and alpha component to it above 100% of, uh, of the money that you give them, right? So we, when, we, when we put that together and we kept in mind that the vast majority of investors and advisors that we talked to are highly sensitive to tracking error, that they still... They, they don't they don't want to have any FOMO with the 6040 generally speaking right they need to continue to provide that return stream we thought about using these different fund managers in such a way where you are able to capture this an allocation of 60 percent equity 40 percent bonds and then on top of that alpha that's that's widely available in this, these particular products right so we put I think 10 uh, uh, products together we picked the ones that made sense to get this basic beta allocation. So when you x-ray the portfolio, you will have 160% exposure to things, 60%, I think we were able to capture for equity, 40% to bonds. And because it's, it's not surprising that a lot of the capital efficient funds out there are in the future space, it was easily available alpha happened to be in the CTA space, so that's like trend and the global macro place. And, and by, by global macro, I mean systematic global macro, right? It's still dealing with uh, futures contracts um, and going long and short futures contracts, just like the trend CTAs, but, but global macro also includes um, signals from carry, from mean reversion, from value and the like, right? So that's what you can easily find with the available products today. And then, and then at the end of that, you also see a lot of products like Corey's and ours and, and uh, a few funds from Simplify that stack tail protection on top. So when you put all these, these funds together, you get uh, multiple line items, right? That's a lot easier to, to, it's a lot more palatable. This line item risk goes away where you, you have eight to 10 different funds. You're allocating between 10 and 15% to each one of them. You x-ray, you get an allocation of your 60-40 plus this alpha component. And what we're trying to do with this alpha component, I think well, this is a crucial point here when putting these things together, it is absolutely crucial that if you want, if you want low tracking error, gold and commodities and other diversifying assets are going to give you a, a completely different return stream, more similar to risk parity, where you really, don't, you really cannot care about what your uh, domestic uh, markets do. So if you do care about the domestic markets, you need to find overlays that are trying to make money most years, that where, where they're going to be positive nine out of the 10 years that you invest in them. And that's a key thing. And they need to be non-correlated to your 60-40. 
so that at the end of the year, when you're adding up your 60-40 returns, you can then look at your CTA and global macro, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the low single-digit returns that they've had over the last 10 years that you wouldn't want to invest in for your traditional portfolio, when you stack that 1% to 5% excess return on top of your 60-40, all of a sudden it becomes attractive. Right, so I think that's important. If you're going to stack, be non-correlated, single-digit returning alpha is magic when you're stacking it on top, and uh, and you know as time goes by, we'll get more managers that offer different things outside of uh, global macro and CTA. I think right? so. That's that's just again, it's not prescriptive. It is just a way of doing it, and people can play around with those uh, funds and allocations in order to come to a portfolio that they like best. And one of the things I think in the data, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a high degree of tracking error. I mean, the tracking error was relatively, relatively small, and yet the returns and the risk adjusted returns were, you know, quite superior to a 60-40. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at the types of exposures we stacked on top, and, and they were chosen very carefully, right, again, for that attractive property of having sort of low downside risk, but some potential upside explosive potential, you know, you look at something like managed futures, a lot of the frustration with managed futures has not necessarily been the absolute drawdown that they've exhibited. You know, you look over the last, call it 20 years, 15 years, the max drawdown of the SOC Gen CTA trend index has been anywhere between 10 and 15%. That's very palatable as an investment. The problem has been for most investors that when they're trying to introduce CTAs into the portfolio, they're having to sell stocks and bonds. And so when a CTA goes into a five-year shallow drawdown while bonds are making new highs, there's a real opportunity cost there. And if you want to really do this correctly, you probably need to allocate a significant amount to CTAs in your portfolio for the diversification benefit. You know, you can't just carve out a 5 or 10% slice and really expect it to do anything. And so allocating to these types of alternatives has been really hard in a traditional framework because of that behavioral problem. But to Rod's point, when you stack them on top of the 60-40, you're pretty much guaranteeing yourself that core 60-40 return plus this return stream on top that if it exhibits this type of convexity that it's sort of low shallow drawdowns plus some random explosive potential to the upside, that's a pretty attractive profile all taken together. Yeah, and I think an interesting view of this is you have, you know, in the back test we show indeed that 18 out of 21 years, um, the stacked return portfolio outperformed the 60-40 the portfolio. And when it outperformed, it outperformed, like I think the long term is just under 4%, right? So that's what you've stacked on top. That 4% return seems amazing. You, you've actually increased your return. Instead of reaching per yield, you diversified return stacking of 3 to 4%. But if you take that out and say, hey, would you like a 3 to 4% return? Take away 30% of what you normally do and add the 3 to 4%. It's not attractive to do without, without leverage, right? So all of a sudden, something unattractive, an alternative strategy that is unattractive and nobody wants to touch with a 10-foot pole, when you can stack it, it's, it becomes incredibly attractive. Yeah, and just uh, before I hand it back over to Jack here, the, that, that word leverage, as we kind of talked about before, you know, people immediately think that's kind of a recipe for disaster. Um, but in this case, as you're, as you're kind of showing, like leverage can actually help quite significantly. And even in the paper you guys wrote about, you know, Buffett, you know, part of his excess return over time comes from his, you know, con conservative use of leverage, if, if you will. So leverage isn't, isn't bad. Um, and I think the return... The return stacking name is certainly a lot better. Corey, um, you know, you're known for talking about the idea that risk cannot be destroyed, only transformed. Um, and I'm wondering sort of when you look at this concept of, of what you're doing here with return stacking, does that really hold? You know, are we actually taking the risk of increased leverage and are we destroying it? Um, or or does, that, does that concept still hold in the context of what you're talking about here? I certainly think the concept still holds, right? I think the... What we need to do is look at a return stacking portfolio versus what the alternative is, right? So if we're looking at what does it take to earn 7.5% annualized today on an expected basis, uh, and we're saying that portfolio traditionally allocated needs to be 10% bonds, 90% risky assets, many of which are illiquid 
risky assets for better or worse from a behavioral and liquidity perspective. I would argue that's a very concentrated portfolio, um, not just in sort of shared risk, um, but truly shared economic risk, right? When all those risky assets do well or do poorly tends to be in the same economic growth cycle, but introduce some inflation shocks or some negative economic shocks. And that portfolio is highly sensitive to those risks. And so the idea of leverage in and of itself isn't necessarily riskier, right? If you go to the biggest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater, and think about the risk parity concept that they introduced, what they really said was ignoring the leverage part for a moment, we'd be much better off if we took asset classes and thought about them, not as asset classes, but about the economic sensitivities that they had and make sure we're diversified in our portfolio among uh, things that'll do well in an inflationary environment, disinflationary, positive economic growth, negative economic shocks, everything in between, and then take that portfolio and lever it up to an appropriate volatility or risk level, however you want to measure it. And in theory, that more diversified portfolio should be more stable over the long run versus a more concentrated risk portfolio. We're really trying to achieve the same thing here. Um, and that isn't to say, though, that leverage doesn't have its own unique risks, right? What we tend to see in a crisis, particularly an acute violent crisis, is that you're going to have rapid deleveraging uh, when margin calls are made. You see correlations crash to one. It's one of the reasons we advocate for strategies that are sort of mechanically diversifying, like managed futures that can go short and actually do well in that sort of crisis. Uh, but it's one of the other reasons we talk about in the paper using a little bit of tail protection potentially in the portfolio as a hedge to that type of environment. But again, when we look at sort of the what's the, the other choice we can make, being 100% equities versus a 60-40 with some managed futures and global macro stacked on top, I would argue the latter portfolio is much better diversified as a portfolio than the 100% equity alternative. Um, I was wondering, you, you talk about the idea of the rebalancing premium in, in this paper, and you know that's something you both have done work on in, in the past as well. And that can be a little bit counterintuitive to investors that I can get an increased return just by rebalancing my portfolio. So I'm wondering if you could just explain how that works, how the rebalancing premium can actually increase someone's return. Yeah, I think that the, the reason that it, it hasn't caught on is because research in the past 20 years has focused on the rebalancing premium or, or lack thereof when rebalancing across 500 equity stocks, right? And when you do that, the rebalancing premium in, in securities that are highly correlated to each other is going to be insignificant after transaction costs. The key differentiator and where, where people who, who really understand this is that you actually, this is a principle of pure entropy, pure random noise. If you can find asset classes or investments that are truly non-correlated to each other and have some volatility, the pure act of grabbing money from the winner and rebalancing it to the loser as the loser mean reverts and gets that, that excess return that it wouldn't have otherwise had if it didn't have that extra money, then you are able to, to create a portfolio, even theoretically, two asset classes that are going down independently that are zero correlated and highly volatile can make a positive equity line, right? Now that is in situ, but in, in the real world, we wrote a paper that we tag in, the, in, the paper, in, in this paper um, that deals with the rebalancing premium in the future space. So if you deal with over 70 different futures contracts and you, and you cluster the similar asset classes together, you end up with around 13 unique bets on average. Sometimes it's 20 unique bets, sometimes it's four, right? Because things vary and things correlate and, and become less correlated. But when you're dealing with 13 unique um, asset classes and you're able to rebalance on a consistent basis, what we show is that even if all those 13 groups annualize at zero, a rebalancing premium between three and 4% is achievable. This is money from nothing, right? So these are, the, these are the things that happen in the background that people don't talk about. It can be considered alpha. Uh, I, I had discussions with institutions where they're like, well, that's alpha. That's, that's actually you being able to provide that for the investor is alpha that you should get paid for, right? And it's just a concept that I think has been 
put aside because most of the major research has been in the rebalancing premium across highly correlated securities. You've touched on this a little bit in your other answers, but you know this does seem to be when you read the paper, this does seem to be a win-win. This approach, you know, there don't seem to be a lot of downsides, and, and I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk about what some of the major downsides are. Like I know Corey, I think somebody asked you on Twitter about tax efficiency. Is that a problem with this? You know, could, what would be the major downsides of this? You would think as you look at it. Yeah, let me let me talk to first why maybe these upside exists, right? And I think the reality is there's tremendous leverage aversion out in the marketplace, right? I'm just overcoming people's natural fear of leverage is one of the things that makes this opportunity potentially exist. The downsides though right now, and and they will differ over time, I think there are some that are intrinsic to the portfolio and there's some that are just uh, intrinsic to the market. So what do I mean by that? Intrinsic to the portfolio would be we are using leverage, right? And so we are return stacking. So ignore portfolio construction. If we say we're taking asset A, B, C, and D and adding them together, and we enter a market where all those returns are simultaneously negative, well, that's a risk. And that's one of the reasons we talk about you really need to focus on economically diversifying assets. You really need to focus on structurally uncorrelated return streams. And if you are going to put more leverage on than you're comfortable, you should really think about the types of hedges you need in your portfolio for this to work and for you to never hit a catastrophic loss scenario. Some of the other you know, problems with this, I think that people tend to point out, are fees. Right now, a lot of the funds that provide the capital efficiency seem at face value to be much more expensive than just a traditional beta portfolio would be. And we can go into this deeper, um, but the trade-off you're getting is you are getting more exposure and you are stacking these returns. And so the open question is, can those excess returns overcome the added fees today? Both Rodrigo and I think they can, and we can dive deeper into some of that. And then the second is a lot of people talk about taxes. And here you have to be a little careful because there are some portfolios that achieve return stacking in a very tax inefficient manner. And there's some that do it very tax efficient. So as an example, um, PIMCO has been doing this since the 1980s in a lineup they call Stocks Plus. And they launched some mutual funds in it uh, uh, on this topic in the mid 2000s. And the way they do it is they buy an actively managed bond portfolio and they overlay it with S&P 500 futures to give you 100% exposure to the S&P plus 100% exposure to bonds. This is incredibly tax inefficient because S&P 500 futures are taxed at a 60% long-term, 40% short-term rate. So even though you're trying to get a completely passive S&P exposure that you would hope would be just long-term cap gains and actually hopefully never really create any turnover, because the because you're rolling these futures every quarter, you are realizing every quarter 60% long-term, 40% short-term gains. So it's a very tax inefficient structure versus the wisdom tree efficient core US ETF NTSX does it the exact opposite way where they buy the S&P underlying and overlay with US Treasury futures, which I would argue is much more tax efficient because they can just buy and hold that S&P exposure and it's an ETF so they can use some of the uh, tax sort of washing mechanisms with the authorized participants to keep the tax basis uh, sort of washed out. Um, and then because they're overlaying with U.S. Treasury futures, those Treasury futures get the same 60-40 tax treatment, long-term, short-term, uh, which is arguably better than the ordinary income tax rate you would have to pay otherwise. So that actually might be more tax advantaged. And so I think you have to be careful. That all said, uh, advisors and individuals can add a ton of value thinking about asset location. So when they look at these different funds, figuring out which ones are less tax efficient and putting them in tax deferred or qualified accounts, and then the more tax efficient ones in your taxable accounts. Um, but also finally, you know, even if this does incur more taxes, what we really should be thoughtful about and consider are what are the ultimate post-tax returns we're able to achieve, right? I sort of look at it as, you know, if the 60-40 is your cake and return stacking puts icing on the cake and then you get taxed on some of that icing and it gets scraped away, well, I'd rather have some icing on the cake than none, right? You still might be better off 
net of taxes. That makes a lot of sense. I wanted just to sum it up. I want to ask you guys the same question I asked Corey at the end of our, when we had you on to talk about liquidity cascades, which is, you know, most of the people that follow our podcast are individual investors. A lot of them are probably in something similar to the 60-40 portfolio. You know, what do you think, you know, for, for that person sitting here today owning that portfolio, what do you think the major conclusions from all of this, just to wrap it up, would be, you know, from the research you guys have done? Look, th these conclusions have to be put in the context of behavioral economics, right? Understanding what is optimal for mathematically and, and numerically versus what is optimal behaviorally. And so the truth is the reason we wrote this paper this way rather than creating one that's based on an all-weather approach, for example, which you could easily do, is because the vast majority of people are still de devoted to that 60-40. It is going to be very difficult for us to ease them out of it before the crisis happens, right? It's never thoughtful research slowly moving to what's optimal. It's always crisis, necessity, change. So the reason this is, this is such a key component is that, yes, you should, you should run a risk parity portfolio. This is what we've always been talking about. Do risk parity, add some alpha, add some tail. That's magic. Nobody wants to do that, right? So if you don't, then you have your 60-40. We are providing a solution where we can when we can provide excess returns. Let's say the next ten years, Corey's analysis is right, and you know numerous other people, including ourselves, that believe that the sixty forty portfolio is going to annualize at two and a half percent, which is not going to meet anybody's needs. So it it just blows up. It doesn't do well. That's a problem if you're just sixty forty. But if you have sixty forty plus another three to four percent on top, all of a sudden you are meeting your client's needs with that stacking. Right? So you can have your cake, your FOMO cake, and your tracking error cake and eat it too. And if we are t dead wrong and the 60-40 continues to go up and annualizes at 8%, well, you can do 8 plus whatever the excess return from the stacking portfolio is. Right? So this is just, I guess, a bit of a cop-out from, from doing an optimal portfolio given the behavioral reality of the, the base that we, that we attend to. Right? So I think... Yeah, you sh it's probably going to be low, but I've been wrong for five years. This is a this is a, a way forward where that is likely more palatable for now. What I would add to that is is the paper is not meant to be prescriptive. What we talk about in the paper, where we have a sixty forty portfolio that we add thirty percent CTA, thirty percent global macro exposure on top, is just an example. And what we're trying to highlight is that this return stacking approach can be used in very creative ways for, with investors, however they feel comfortable. So we talked at the beginning, for example, about using you know, treasuries, replacing those with futures and allocating to short-term investment-grade corporates. My guess is there's a lot of investors and individuals and advisors out there that are allocated to a U.S. Treasury fund of some sort. Well, I know for a fact that there is an ETF launching that is going to provide 2.5 times exposure to U.S. Treasuries. And so the question is, can you take that fund and replace it, part of it, you know, take 40% and allocate to this 2.5 times levered Treasury future strategy and then fill in the rest with short-term investment-grade corporate bonds and just eke out a little bit of alpha there. You don't need to go all in the way Rodrigo and I might in our personal portfolios because we're willing to accept the tracking error, there are ways that this return stacking concept can be used to add value around the edges of a portfolio and try to eke out those incremental returns that we think will be incredibly valuable when compounded over the next five to 10 years. Speaking of value investing, uh, you guys are value guys. Another uh, approach that we've talked about is you buy the NTSX that provides you the 60-40 exposure by buying 67% of it, right? So you have 67% of your portfolio invested in this thing that now will give you the returns of a 60-40 portfolio, but you've magically uh, have 33% in cash that let's say you leave on the silence. If you're a value guy, you want to buy when things are cheap. And if you're, if you're the type of advisor or person that's been in cash this whole time waiting for a dip to capture those excess returns and, and buy at the bottom, then, then you don't actually need to do that. You can get the 60-40 exposure, take the hit, 
but now you have $33 in cash to buy all those cheap value stocks at the right time. And you don't, nobody's going to be mad at you while you wait. Your wife's not going to be mad at you or your husband's not going to be mad at you. You're an individual investor and your clients aren't going to be mad as you wait for that opportunity. So you can see the many ways that one can apply this return stacking approach. Ultimately, you will be return stacking if you get the timing right, right? And Rod, what you just described is exactly what we did on March 23rd, 2020. Just kidding. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right to the day. But to Rod's point, like what we see a lot of times is people who want to buy the dip don't have capital to buy the dip with, right? How do you buy the dip if you're supposed to be 100% invested at all times um, other than just rebalancing or selling something that's lower vol to buy the stuff that's on sale, making a relative value decision, using some of this capital efficiency to actually leave cash on the sidelines I've spoken with advisors and high net worth individuals who leave it there because they get capital calls into private investments or they want to deploy it opportunistically or they just like having that cash buffer on the side. There's so many creative ways that I think this return stacking concept can add value to individuals beyond just the example we use in the paper. Uh, and so advisors, feel free to reach out to us. We've, we've talked to tons of advisors about this concept. Uh, in individuals, it's a little harder for, from compliance reasons uh, for us to talk to you. But if you are interested in this sort of stuff, I think we're going to be trying to publish more of these types of ideas going forward in, in creative ways in which this can be used. That's great. I want to ask you both um, one last sort of standard question here. And it, you know, it, it's, it's more of trying to tap your general knowledge and wisdom and experience in the markets. And you guys can both um, take a shot at answering this, but based on your experiences, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Um, I guess I can go. I think what I always try to impart on investors is that predicting the future is really, really hard. It's nearly impossible. Now, that might so sound odd coming from a person that has spent his living trying to predict the future. Um, but the, the future that I'm, trying to, that I'm talking about is the one where you're trying to predict what's going to happen over the next 12 months to any single asset class or security at any time, right? The type of prediction that we do internally is incredibly competitive. And I'm trying to predict using multiple factors what's going to happen in the next 5 to 10 trading days. So I need a full team. And I need to be active to be able to, to create that alpha. And it's in the most competitive landscape in the world. So what I try to tell people is if you don't know for sure that you have an edge, that you are understanding that you're competing with the brightest minds on the planet in the most competitive landscape, if you don't understand that, uh, then you're in trouble. And you should internalize that, the, in my view, the way to approach the problem of saving for retirement is that you need to have an understanding that diversification is the first place to start. It is an explicit recognition of our ignorance. And of course, the way you need to both diversify for different market environments, high inflation, low inflation, high growth, low growth, but you also need to make sure that you put those components in balance so that the maniacs aren't taken over the asylum where you're not having high volatility stuff, you know, uh, tail wagging that portfolio dog. So I think balance and diversification without making any future prediction is is your first step like you need to get that right you need to internalize why diversification works and why it's important and stop trying to predict or believe in anybody that's trying to give you predictions of the future once you have that in place then you can start testing how good you are against the rest of this competitive landscape i think I think that's step one, whereas the opposite tends to happen. People come into the market, they have the Dunning-Kruger effect, they have one win picking a stock, and they, they think they, they got it. And there's the more they, they play this game, the more they realize they don't have it. And a decade later, they, they said, well, diversification is the way to go because I can't foresee the future, right? So we got to flip that. Focus on diversification first. Create a do-no-harm portfolio, the Hippocratic portfolio of finance, and then start trying to... Um, edge out some uh, some alpha i think my sentiments will echo rods i'll take it in a slightly different manner i would say that i think a lot of people try to find alpha in security selection and i think there's a lot more alpha to be created over time in portfolio structure uh, and it can both be offensively through ideas like return stacking but also defensively uh, in terms of how you create a resilient portfolio. 
we're only going to live one path of market history. We never want to realize catastrophic losses. So Rod just spoke very eloquently about building a resilient portfolio diversified across economic regimes. The way I've always thought about it is there's really just more than one dimension of diversification. We often think about what I call the what dimension, as in what are we investing in? And I think that's a crucially important dimension of asset allocation. But I think we should also think about how those investment decisions are being made and when they're being made, right? Uh, if you got your asset allocation correct, uh, but you put all your equities into deep value stocks over the last decade, you know, you've sort of lagged behind equity markets. So your how decision wasn't necessarily well diversified. Similarly, that when, when you rebalance is sort of an opportunity diversification. If you happen to have private equity in your portfolio, for example, and you just allocated once in 2013, you may, it might've been a good vintage. It may not have been. Similarly, when you rebalance your portfolio has a, has a huge amount of impact. So for me, creating portfolios with true resiliency is not just thinking about the economic diversification that Rodrigo pointed out, though that is crucially important. It's also thinking through these other axes of diversification. That's great, guys. Thank you. Um, if people want to read the paper, download the paper, learn more about you, follow you guys on Twitter, learn more about your firms, um, where can they go to do that? Yeah, so they can go on investresolve.com and uh, tap in the research uh, section. You'll be able to find the paper there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter as Rod Gordillo P if, they, if anybody wants to reach out and chat about this topic. And uh, we also do a, a live uh, Friday night riffs um, on uh, YouTube and I think Periscope and Twitter. Uh, where, where Mike, Adam, myself, and, and a guest come on and speak about whatever you know we feel like. It's, and this started before the, uh, or right after COVID happened. We were missing each other, missing arguing against uh, each other. And so this, this spawned, and it's been pretty fantastic. If you want to get to know the personalities behind Resolve better, that's a way to do it. And for me, you can, you can find our firm at thinknewfound.com. You can find me on Twitter, C. Hofstein, uh, and you can check out my podcast, Flirting with Models. Hard to say that without laughing. Great. Thank you very much, guys. This has been awesome. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks, guys. That was great. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.